Uh, as a reminder, Jesus speaking to Israel in the Sermon on the Mount. And Israel find themselves in a difficult situation. They are tired of being under the boot of the Roman kingdom. And they are longing for God's kingdom to come on earth. They want God to sort the world out, which we all do, don't we? All, we all want God to sort the world out. They want comfort. They want justice. They want liberation. And they want vindication and they want mercy. They want to inherit everything that God has promised to them. And so they are restless. They are anxious. They are troubled. And in that frustration and in that anxiety, because they're just listening to that frustration and they're just listening to that anxiety and in their temptation to try and strike back at the Romans and in their desire to, to kind of attempt to, out of their own strength to bring in the kingdom of God, then they are forgetting their calling to be light and salt to the world and they are forgetting the calling that God has placed upon them to be a blessing to the nations. So Jesus, through the Beatitudes, is inviting Israel to embrace God's kingdom. Come and be at this sort of life. This is how the kingdom operates. This is how kingdom people express the kingdom rule of God. And so, like them, we are also invited to into this, to be at this kind of life. As I, as I said at the start of the series, as we start this new day in the church, we, we will on the back of this look into our values and, our, and that kind of thing as a church. But I think it's important for us as Christians, to root ourselves in God's kingdom. That's what we are. We understand that we are not just Metro Christian sense. In fact, that little name is, means nothing. I'll be honest with you. Pastors shouldn't say that. But it's true. Church names mean nout. It's, it's the kingdom of God that matters. It's the kingdom of God that matters. And it's important that we root ourselves in what these kingdom descriptions are like. And so we've already explored the poor in spirit and that we're invited to taste of humility. Uh, we've explored those who mourn and that we're invited to emit the sound of lament, that we are mourning people, but we are also hopeful people. And like last week, Olivier, if I've said that right, Olivier, he told me off last week, didn't he, at the front? I got a grilling from him. Olivier uh, last week talked about us being meek and that we had to have this touch of gentleness. And so this week we're going to look at Matthew 5 and verse 6, but we're going to read the whole uh, passage together. And I'm going to ask Laurie, uh, just because it's nice to invite people to do things as well, uh, just to read Matthew 5 to us this morning. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when you mock, when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? 
It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The NRSV, if you have the NRSV, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But I, you will find some places will say justice. We'll get to that. But what an impressive statement. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what an amazing promise that they will be filled. But what does it mean? What is it really on about? Now, to some extent, we understand hunger and thirst, don't we? We understand that. I'm saying that. I'm saying we understand hunger and thirst. I'll be honest with you. I've never experienced hunger. Uh, there's plenty of times when I, when I was a kid, I'd turn to my parents and say, I'm starving. And I've heard that from my kids, and I've never felt that. It's never, I've never really had hunger. I have experienced the munchies. I've, I've experienced the snack attacks many times, especially late at night. And especially when I'm watching cookery shows like MasterChef or Great British Bake Off, I always get the snack attacks, which is funny, isn't it? Because they always encourage you, the dietitians out of the world, the health gurus out there, the doctors out there will tell you not to eat at night. And then the TV go and put on shows about food at night. And then when you're watching those shows, you end up getting the snack attacks. And someone on MasterChef is making some nice, like, nouveau cuisine meal with lamb and stuff like that. And, and you can't help but go into the kitchen and make some cheese on toast. Because you just get the snack attacks. I understand that kind of thing. Uh, but we, I don't understand hunger and thirst. But whatever it is, whether it's hunger or thirst or the snack attacks, please, we understand that they're not emotions, are they? They are a yearning. They are a movement towards something outside of ourselves, something beyond ourselves, something we lack. So that when we hunger and thirst, we acknowledge our need for something that is beyond our self-sufficiency and our own productivity. And it makes us move towards something else. So we're not going to really look at hunger and thirst this morning. But what about righteousness? What does that mean? And more to the point, whose righteousness is Jesus referring to? Because if we're to hunger and thirst for it, then it can't be something that we possess or something we possess or something that we produce. It's got to have a source somewhere else. So whose righteousness? So I want to explore this word righteousness this morning, if that's all right. If it's not, it's too late. I'm already started and you're stuck. Uh, now, to be honest with you, when I, when I think about words like righteousness and righteous, because they are big Christianese words on the Christians like to use those words. But when I hear those words to sound really irreligious, I can't help but think of Finding Nemo. For anyone who's ever seen the film Finding Nemo, hands up if you've seen the film Finding Nemo. It's a great film. If you've not seen the film Finding Nemo, Finding Nemo, the animated classic, then I would encourage you to do so. It is one of the greatest stories ever told. Uh, so please watch Finding Nemo. And I'm not going to ruin the film for, me, for you, uh, but at the start of Finding Nemo, there's a small clownfish called Nemo who lives on the Great Barrier Reef. And he gets caught by a fishing net and he's taken away. He's stolen away from home and from his father. And as a result, Nemo's father, father a clownfish confusingly called Marlin, 
which if you know your fish is really confusing, but a clownfish called Marlon, he then sets off in his passionate pursuit of his son, crossing this ocean full of danger and strangeness in order to bring his son Nemo back home. It's a great story. Like I said, one of the greatest stories ever told. And during that film, Marlon's not on his own. He does receive help on this perilous journey. And at one point in the film, Marlon meets a green turtle called Crush, for those who've seen the film. And he ends up hitching a ride on the back of Crush's shell as they travel along this fast body of moving water known as the East Australian Current. Now, Crush, the green turtle, I know there's a lot of names and it's confusing if you've never seen the film, but he's a bit of a surfer-like character. And so he uses words, and I'm going to try and do my best surfer impression here. So this is good. What do you mean? Sound optimistic, at least. It's, uh, but he uses words like dude and awesome and whoa. They're his kind of favorite words. Uh, but one of Crush's other favorite words is righteous. He likes to use the word righteous. And as they're traveling down this fast body of water called the East Australian Current, Crush is like a surfer riding a huge wave. And in the excitement and in the thrill and the exhilaration, with all his adrenaline pumping as he's riding this current, Crush keeps yelling out, righteous, righteous. He keeps yelling this word out, righteous. And in Crush's language, (laughs) Sam's in in tears here. I don't know why. I mean, that was a really good surfer impression, Sam. I don't know what the problem is. Uh, But in Crush's language, righteous means awesome. It means amazing. It means cool. It means exciting. Now that's not what Jesus is talking about when Jesus uses the word righteous. Although, hopefully as we'll see this morning, maybe awesome, when we get into this world, maybe awesome in its true sense isn't far actually off the mark. But even though, even though Crush's use of the word righteous is not the same as Jesus' use of the word righteous, finding Nemo as a modern story, really does help us to grapple with the ancient story that Jesus is alluding to in Matthew 5, verse 6, when he uses the word righteous. Now, of course, Jesus, to state the obvious, isn't talking about the story of finding Nemo either. Uh, But in talking to his own people, in talking to the people of Israel, Jesus is referring to Israel's story and its relationship with God. And it's a long story. Spanning many, many centuries. I'm certainly not going to recite it to you today, but you can read it all about it in what we call as the Old Testament. You can read all the way through it. And it's a long story. And in the language of that story, within the history of Israel's story into relationship with God, the word righteous turns up again and again and again and again. Now in the Greek, sorry to bore you with some Greek, but in the Greek it's the word dekeazine. And it's the same word that is used in Matthew 5, verse 6. We'll come back to that in a minute. But in the original language of the story, of the way this story was told, in the Hebrew language, in the Old Testament language, the word is zedek. Zedek. Can you say that word? Zedek. Zedek. I want you to recite that over and over. No, don't, don't, really, don't. And it's, it's a word that crops up often in the Old Testament. And it describes, first and foremost, something about the nature of God. God is righteous. God is righteous. But what does that mean? What does that mean to say God is righteous? For some people, it means God is always right. God is always in the right. God is moral 
And God always follows the rules. And therefore, when God asks humanity, me and you and everyone else, to be righteous, or when God asks Israel to be righteous, then God is also asking Israel to be moral and to be good and to follow the rules. For other people, the word is speaking of justice. And it's sometimes used. That Greek word is sometimes used as the word justice. And it's translated that way, hence why in in the NLT and some other translations, it is blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for justice. And so as such, God's righteousness is understood as God being a just God. God is an impartial judge. He will judge fully. God will do what is right. Now, in a way, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those words. Nothing wrong with those definitions. Although they do raise some really asking interesting questions. But actually, they get nowhere close. Nowhere close to the depth of meaning that the Hebrew word sedek carries. Now it's not, Sedek is not a moral word. It's not talking about morality. Sedek is not a legal word. It's not talking about who is in the right and who is in the wrong. Sedek is a relational word. Always has been. And in its general sense, Sedek is actually righteousness is about loyalty to a relationship. And in the very specific sense of Israel's story in the scriptures, Sedek is the focus sense of God's loyalty to the covenant he made with Israel. And further than that, the covenant and the promise God has made and God's loyalty to creation. Does that make sense? Now, apologies for the word study. You don't have to remember any of that. There will not be a test afterwards. But I want you to see that when the Bible speaks of God's righteousness, God's sedek, it's describing how God acts out of a commitment to a relationship. God is sedek. That God does not act randomly or on a whim, but actually acts out this radical loyalty, this radical covenant loyalty that God has this trustworthiness and this faithfulness to a relationship. And so righteousness is a description of what emerges from the underlying promise-keeping character of God. Does that make sense? Now, in Israel's story, it's described in the Torah, in those books of Moses, and echoed throughout the Psalms and throughout the words of the prophets, God makes promises. God cuts covenants with people. He makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. He makes a covenant to a person called Jacob, who then gets his name changed to Israel. He makes a covenant with the people of Israel. He makes a covenant with King David. God constantly makes these covenants, and they're not contracts. God has not taken out a 24-month contract like you do with your mobile phone. It's not a legal thing. It's a personal relationship. Just like when you get married to someone, you make a covenant. And so God enters into this promise of relationship, this promise of presence, this promise of involvement, this promise in participation. God marries himself to humanity, which is radical when you think about it, isn't it? To use the word, another word that Crush uses in finding him. It's crazy. That God's life interacts with the life of the people. And that, God, and that God is so faithful, as Steph has just mentioned, I didn't lead her to say that this morning, but God is so faithful to these promises, God is so loyal to these covenants that he has made with Israel and others, that even if that covenant has been broken from the partner's side, that even if that partner can't fulfill it, or that fails to fulfill it, then God will find a way to restore it and fulfill it. Have you got that? And so constantly throughout the Bible, God acts to rescue. God acts to restore. God acts to save. God acts to bring people back to 
himself or to go back to finding Nemo out of passionate commitment and loyalty. God, like Nemo's father, acts to restore what is lost. Does that make sense? God passionately pursues. God is a God who searches because God is faithful. Or as the theologian Kenneth Bailey put it, Kenneth Bailey says it, righteousness is God's acts in history to save. Righteousness is God's acts in history to save. And in the story of the Bible, if there was a primary example, a primary example of this divine loyalty, this righteousness of God, then the Exodus story would be it. It would be the prime story, God's rescue of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. The whole story of the Passover is the defining act in Israel's history. It forms the bedrock of their relationship with God and the understanding of their God and their expectations of God. That God is righteous. God is faithful. God pursues God seeks that even when we are unfaithful, to quote the words of Paul and 2 Timothy, that even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny who he is. God is faithful. And so when Jesus utters this words, righteousness and the Beatitudes, his audience were not scratching their head wondering what he's thinking about or what he's talking about. They know exactly what is what Jesus is referring to. When Jesus first spoke these words, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is exactly where Israel find themselves. Israel is desperate to see an act of God. They're desperate for God's acts of salvation. They're desperate for God's righteousness. They want rescue from Rome. And Jesus has promised to them, Jesus promised to those who hunger and thirst is that they will be satisfied with what God is going to do. And he repeats it further on, two verses later. He says more or less the same thing in Matthew 5, verse 8, about the pure of heart. That if they are pure of heart, if they are pure of heart, they will see God act. If you're watching closely, you will see God act. If you're watching my life, Jesus is saying, and what God is going to do, you are going to see God's righteousness. And what Jesus' audience don't realize at this moment, but what they will soon come to realize is that through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, God's faithfulness to David, God's faithfulness to Israel, God's faithfulness to Jacob, God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah and to Noah and to Adam is being fulfilled. That through Jesus, God's righteousness is revealed. There used to be an old song that used to sing that line, I think. That God's righteousness is revealed. God's saving, restoring, pursuing commitment is seen in the life of Jesus Christ. The fruit of Jesus, a new Passover, a new exodus has transpired that has, received, that has revealed Jesus, God's saving faithfulness to Israel and to creation and to all of humanity once and for all time. We'll look at that story in a, in a couple of weeks, hopefully. But God is faithful. It's why we're here this morning, isn't it? Because God has sought us, and God has found us, and God has brought us home. Have you noticed that? It's all God. It's not us. It's God. It's God's righteousness. And it's this, it's this awe of this wonderful, saving righteousness that lead Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he writes one of my favorite passages in, in the whole New Testament, Romans 8. 
a passage we all know so well. When Paul thinks about what God's righteousness is, how it's been displayed through Jesus' life and his death on a cross and his resurrection, he boldly writes this, if God is for us, then who can ever be against us? Can anything separate us from God's love? Does it mean God no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? I am convinced, Paul writes, and I, I wish I was as convinced, but I need that convincing, I'm sure we all do. But he says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above in the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing can separate. Because God is righteous. God is faithful. Or to use John's word in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. And the scope of this unrelenting, searching love, to go back to finding Nemo's use of the word, is truly awesome. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's wide and deep in scope. It's absolutely phenomenal. I'm not sure we're convinced. But God loves, and God is faithful. God actively seeks what is lost. Jesus told a few stories about that, didn't he? In fact, he told more than a few. But he told a few stories. You know, a shepherd seeking a stray sheep, a woman hunting down her lost coin. We know those stories. But think about it. Think about it. What, what, think about what this says about God. Who God is, what God's character is like. See, some people today, when they think about God, they, they think about some distant onlooker. Some, some far-off, apathetic, unconcerned, impersonal being who, who is unaffected by us and unmoved. And that's just not atheists. That's some Christians as well. Because we suddenly think everything in our life, we have to do this to draw God to us or draw God's presence for us. We don't. When we worship this morning, I hope you understand, we're not drawing God's presence into this room. God's here. God got here before we did. He got here before we opened the church doors. You get in your car, you don't have to pray to summon God's presence. God is already there. God's, God's always seeking. See, God is very much affected by us. Even in the ancient world, it's not just a modern line of thought. Even in the ancient world, when people talked about God or the gods, they were thought of as uncurring things. Or in some cases, they were just caught, thought of as a source of threat. That there were beings that had to be appeased and appealed to. That you had to win them over. You had to calm them down. And humanity was kind of thought to kind of exist on this basis of God's whims and God's mood swings. But that's not God. And the testimony of the Bible is this revelation of, of a God who has an intense concern for us. That according to Scripture, God is not some apathetic onlooker, but he's an active participant in our lives. God is not immovable and unfeeling, but God is compassionate. That the Bible witnesses to a God who is attentive to and who actively cares for his creation and his creatures. That's God. We need persuading of that sometimes, even as Christians. 
Because we think God has mood swings. And it's not God who has the problem with his mood swings. It's not. It's actually us. But it's not God. See, God seeks to share his life with us. I mean, that's great, isn't it? The amazing Jewish theologian, a wonderful guy called Abraham Joshua, Joshua Heschel, he puts it this way. But he says, God is involved in human history and is affected by human acts. And he goes on to say, it is a paradox. I know it's a big word, I apologize. But it is a paradox beyond compare that the eternal God is concerned with what is happening in time. The God who is eternal, beyond us, who doesn't really need us, but he's actually deeply concerned and affected by us and moved by us and searches for us. That God doesn't work remotely from creation, but he's actually in the thick of it with us, in the mess of it all. That God's spirit is with us. See, despite what you think this morning, despite what religion has taught you, despite what maybe Christianity has even taught you, God's attention does not need to be grabbed. God's love does not need to be won. God already loves you. Let me say that again. God already loves you. God is already focused upon you and on creation. God is already passionately committed to us, to you, to me, and to this world. And like the parental love of Marlin and Finding Nemo, God does not need to be shaken out of some slumber or summoned into a search. God is already active in searching and restoring what is lost. And so when we cry out for God, when we reach out for God, it's not that God is responding to us. Please understand that. When we cry out for God, when we reach out for God, it's not that God is responding to us. God's outstretched arm was already there. Already waiting. Waiting for us to reach out and to take hold of what he has already done. You don't seem convinced. See, it's not, if that's not the case, if God is not already searching for us, if God is not passionate about us, if God is unconcerned, if God can't be bothered with us, if God just hangs on a whim, if God has to be appealed to and appeased and summoned or his attention to be grabbed, then God is not righteous. But God is righteous. See, God is not the uncurring partner in this relationship or the unconcerned onlooker or the one who lacks faithfulness. God is not the one who's cold towards us. In the witness of the Bible, it's actually revealed to be the other way around. It's humanity that is the uncurring, absent, unfaithful and cold partner in the relationship. For many reasons, some of them understandable, for others not so. But it's all God desires is for us to respond to his divine search of us. And that we would reflect that search. That as God's image bearers, that God's faithfulness to and God's concern for the world would be reflected to the world by us. See, I'm saying all this because I know we, get, we love the Christianese. We love the word righteousness. We really do. And again, I need to say this. When Jesus speaks of righteousness here, he's not speaking about our righteousness. He's not speaking about my righteousness. He's not speaking about your righteousness. No matter how good or how moral or how good you are at following rules, he's not speaking of you. And maybe we can hear this verse as Jesus encouraging us 
to seek to be, and to desire and to hunger and thirst towards becoming good and moral people. But Jesus isn't saying that. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. It's not a bad thing to seek and work towards being a good person. You should absolutely do that, of course. But he's not talking about us. He's not talking about your righteousness or my righteousness. He's speaking of God's righteousness, God's loyalty, God's active passion to seek and restore humanity. The only reference to our actions here, the only reference to us in this beatitude is that we are invited to hunger and to thirst for God. That's it. We are encouraged to seek the God who seeks. We are encouraged to crave God as an echo of God's eternal craving for us. Do we get that? Now, when we're wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't do good. Please don't, don't leave this church today and break into someone's home and steal their DVD player. Please don't do that. Don't, please don't be abusive to people, of course. But the problem is, we, if we're not careful, Christianity just becomes moralism. And what we think it's about is adopting a good set of morals because a good set of morals appeases God and draws God's presence and God's holiness to my life. And so our life of faith suddenly becomes this idea of us doing good in order to get God's attention or to keep God with us or to make sure God is loyal because if we're not, God just strays away. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is despite our unfaithfulness, even when we were sinners, God still loved us that he reached out to us and saved us. And our life is not a life of moralism. It's a life of responding in conversation, in partnership with God because he loves us. Or as John writes it in 1 John again, we love God because he first loved us. And more than that, John goes on to say we love each other because he first loved us. So our life becomes an eternal echo of God's love. See, our movements... Our movements, we are to be people who hunger and thirst as a response to God's righteousness. And the promise Jesus gives us, and it's a great promise, and it's a promise he repeats again in Matthew 7, verse 7, in in this sermon. But this promise is this, that if you seek, you will find. That's a great promise, isn't it? Not because God is hiding. It's not because God is hiding. God is not playing hide and seek with creation. That's not the case. It's because God has always been here and so often we're just so unaware of it. Which kind of reminds me of another story in the life of Israel. In Genesis chapter 28, that wonderful story of Jacob as he, as he flees, as he often does in his life as he flees. Jacob lives a life on the run and he rests one night and he puts down a stone to rest his head on and as he wakes up during the night he sees this ladder, if you remember this story. This ladder with angels descend, well, angels coming up and down on this ladder from heaven. And he turns around and says these words, doesn't he? That God was in this place and I did not know it. God is always with us. More so, God is always descending to us. God is always descending unto us. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, I think one of the Psalms says. Truth is no one. And you don't need to, because God is always descending to us. And the promise is, if you just open up your eyes, you'll see that God is with you. God is 
here that God is passionately committed to us because God is righteous. Blessed, Jesus says. Blessed are those who seek the God who seeks because they will find that God is ready and waiting for them and willing to fill them with his life. If I was to rephrase it, that's how I'd put it. Blessed are those who seek the God who seeks because they will find that God is ready and waiting for them and willing to fill them with his life. See, God wants to fill us. When you hunger and crave, when you get the snack attacks, when you get the munchies, it's God who is our spiritual source. And when we're filled on this life of God, it's then that our lives begin to change. Not as a means to attract God, but because we're just feeding on God's loyalty to us and it just has this flow through us. So blessed are those who seek the God who seeks Because God wants to fill you. And he's been pouring out for an eternity to fill you. And all he longs for you today is just open up your heart and your mind in hunger and thirst to receive what he gives so, so freely. Let's pray. Lord God, we've already sang it this morning that you are faithful. But it's so easy just to sing a word and not really think about it. And so I pray, Lord God, as we've come around your word today, I pray you've helped us to think about how faithful you are. And to, to think about your goodness, your goodness that pursues us, your righteousness. And I pray you help us, because so often, Lord God, we, uh, Satan, our, our enemy, would, would try and weigh us down under guilt. He would try and tell us that to get into your kitchen to be fed by you requires a certain set of steps or a certain level of behavior. And so often, Lord God, we are robbed by that. We believe that. We are fed by guilt and we feed our guilt. But actually, Lord, you've called us to come into your presence and to feed on you. And your invitation is so freely given, Lord God, as Isaiah pronounced it, Lord God, in his words, Lord Jesus, you said, come to me. Anyone who was thirsty, come. It's free of charge. And so often, Lord God, in our own lives, maybe in our own thinking, we put a levy on it. We put a charge on it. We feel we need to pay a way before we can get to you. But actually, Lord Jesus, it's you who has opened up the way because you are a God who is faithful. And so I pray, Lord God, you'll help us just to come in our hunger and our thirst to you. Recognizing that you are the only source, Lord God, that is able to satisfy what we are so hungry for and so thirsty for. Help us, Lord Jesus, to to grapple with the weight of your love for us, Lord Jesus. And help us to be an echo, an echo of that craving that you have for us, Lord Jesus. That we may respond uh, to your love, Lord Jesus. And it will allow your life to fill us and to change us and to renew us in Jesus' name. Amen.